Connecticut. Please stay tuned next for Resistance Roundtable coming right up. Welcome to Resistance Roundtable, broadcast on WPKN the second Saturday of each month, where we engage in conversation about local and nationwide organizing for a more just and democratic America during this pivotal and dangerous moment in our nation's history. Hosting today's show is Ruth Ann Baumgartner, who is a longtime instructor in literature and writing in Central Connecticut State University. She's a member of the Executive Committee of the Connecticut Conference of the American Association of University Professors. Ruth also serves as a member of the Board of Directors and a theatrical director herself with the Westport Community Theater. And Ruth Ann is here with us in the studio. Hi, Ruth. Hi, Scott. Richard Hill, host of First Tuesday Day Radio, uh, First Tuesday Rainy Day Radio and Organic Farm Stand. And uh, he's here with us this evening, uh, or this morning, I should say, and is a rotating host of our other WPKN program, Mike Check. Richard is a musician, teacher, and mentor with Youth Radio Connecticut. Hey, Richard. Hello. Good morning. I'm Scott Harris, host of WPKN's weekly public affairs program, Counterpoint, airs here Mondays, and uh, also produced Between the Lines Radio News Magazine, heard here in other stations. So later on this morning, we're going to be talking with Morris Rippey Patton. He's a former vice president of the Bristol, Connecticut chapter of the NAACP and current candidate for Bristol City Council. He's going to be here to talk about the deeply disturbing Keep Connecticut White rally that occurred uh, in Bristol in mid-August and the community and statewide response to yet another in a series of racist white supremacist actions in our state. But we're going to begin uh, right now, uh, and we're very happy to welcome to Resistance Roundtable. Our first guest is Cheat here. Cheat is a national affairs correspondent for The Nation magazine and host of the weekly Nation podcast, The Time of Monsters. He also writes the monthly column Morbid Symptoms and is the author of the book In Love with Art, Francoise Mouly. Uh, Mouly's Adventures in Comics with Art Spiegelman. Jeet, thank you so much for making time uh, for our conversation this morning on Resistance Roundtable. We're very glad you could join us to talk about your recent article uh, titled The GOP's Nazi Problem Has Deep Roots to Build Their Popular Front on the Right. Republicans are happy to recruit white nationalists and that article was published in The Nation magazine on July 31st. So thanks for being here, G. Oh, uh, very good to be here. I'll, I'll just kick things off by noting that your article, uh, you, you cite the Republican Party's long and dark history of association with actors on the extreme right, including members of the John Birch Society, white supremacists, white nationalists, and members of the Nazis and the Ku Klux Klan, who adhered to an ideology of hateful racism, anti-Semitism, and Holocaust denial. 
This history, as you write, goes back to pre-World War II period and extends to today's Trump-era GOP, where not just Donald Trump, but candidates including Florida Governor Ron DeSantis have associations with extremists, white supremacist activists, and he's, he and others have been sending both dog whistles and bullhorn messages to these groups, making it known that their support is welcome or at least not rejected. I wondered if you'd summarize um, for our audience some of this ugly history. Sure, yeah. Um, and I, I should mention uh, the uh, I'm really um, uh, summarizing the work of a whole cohort of sort of younger historians that have been um, uh, looking at this stuff. And uh, I'll mention uh, David Austin Walsh, um, uh, who's I think currently um, uh, has a fellowship at Yale, uh, but um, is author of a forthcoming book called Taking Back America, uh, the Conservative Movement and the Far Right. Um, and uh, so uh, w- 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 what this research shows is um, that it, it, modern conservatism really sort of crystallized um, uh, in the sort of the New Deal era as a reaction to the New Deal. And um, in the sort of 1930s, uh, that included um, a lot of people that were, um, you know, pretty much analogous to the European counterparts of uh, fascism. Uh, people who sort of rejected democracy uh, uh, were often very, like, anti-Semitic and conspiratorial. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I mean, that itself is, like, sort of well-known. I mean, people understand, you know, who Charles Lindbergh was, right, and who Father Coughlin was. Um, but what's interesting is, like, what happened after the war, uh, where... Um, on the one hand, you had a sort of rebranding of conservatism um, in a more intellectual fashion through William F. Buckley and National Review magazine. Um, uh, and then a lot of these previously um, uh, openly fascistic sentiments were considered more taboo because of you know World War II and the Holocaust. Uh, but they didn't go away. And um, what you found is a sort of curious pattern uh, where, on the one hand, the uh, uh, the respectable conservatives would recruit um, the uh, open um, fascist uh, and then work with them, but then if they became too overt in their claims, uh, would have to disassociate themselves. But 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 there's this constant pattern of recruitment. Uh, I think one thing that Wallace mentions is um, the uh, Ravel Oliver, who was like the first uh, book review editor at National Review. Um, was, uh, you know, like uh, really one of the leading, uh, uh, eventually became one of the leading neo-Nazis in America. Uh, But he had been like very close to Buckley for a while until it went too far. And so I I think if you look at that pattern, I mean, you know, like sometimes there's a tendency among the mainstream to say, well, you know, like Buckley deserves credit for like purging conservatism of neo-Nazis and the John Birch Society. But, you know, like, actually, that's not quite the story. I mean, like, he actually, like, you know, like, actively worked with these people for a while and then only, like, you know, disassociated themselves when they became politically embarrassing. And then, and now we see that same pattern with, like, people like Trump and Ron DeSantis. I mean, there's been a bunch of recent cases where DeSantis had to fire um uh, uh, some people, um, uh, Nate Hotchman, uh, who's uh, you know on his staff, who did a video that included uh, you know um, uh, uh, pro-Nazi symbols. Um, uh, there was another 
DeSantis uh, um, ally, uh, uh, influencer who was promoted by the DeSantis campaign named Pedro Gonzalez, who it turned out, um, you know, had a lot of uh, private direct messages that were openly anti-Semitic and and and, and pro-fascist. There's, there's actually been a lot of these cases. So I I, I, I think that um, uh, what the historians are sort of pointing out is uh, exactly um, uh, you know like how long these roots, uh, how long these connections go back. Thank you for that cheat. Uh, Ruth Ann Baumgartner, our co-host, has a, a question for you. Hi. Good morning. It's nice to hear your voice after our brief. Uh, email correspondence yesterday. Um, I, w- I am constantly um, not, well, I can't say I'm constantly baffled, but I constantly marvel at the ease with which the Republican aristocracy, uh, when I was a kid, that's how they seemed to be, like all the all the snobs were Republicans and the rich people were, were Republicans. And suddenly there they are in bed with uh, people that I had grown up using epithets for, um, uh, anyway, with people with much less education and much less money and much less global perspective, uh, the right wing of the Republican Party, so that, uh, so that we have the, the white-haired senators uh, of the dignity of the Republican Party hand-in-hand hand with the crafters uh, and, and actors of, January, of the January 6th attack on the, on the Capitol. And I always wonder what could bring them together, even though you know, we're told that strange bedfellows result from politics. I'm wondering if you if you think that uh, that calling it the politics of resentment would apply to the way that the right wing, the intellectual right wing, and the grassroots right wing have formed such an alliance. Do you think that's a, a valid term? Yeah, I don't know. I, I think resentment is uh, one of the key things holding it together. And I mean, I, I think of it as an um, an alliance between the snobs and the slobs, right? And what? <laughs> yeah. uh, but, uh, uh, but I mean, the thing is, the country club Republicans, what they discovered um, in the New Deal era was that there weren't enough of them. Like they, you know, like if if it was only them versus a sort of you know uh, po- uh, popular liberal uh, program of. Um, uh, uh, expanding the uh, welfare state, then they were very few in number. They would lose elections, uh, as they did like five presidential elections in a row, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so, like, if you don't have enough people like that, then you have to look for um, the, the sort of pure appeal of intellectual conservatism and the sort of you know uh, appeal to claims of a uh, uh, rigid interpretation of the constitution. That doesn't get you very far. You have to look for other sources of support. And unfortunately, the where they found the uh, source of support. Uh, especially um, uh, uh, was among the sort of um, uh, disaffected uh, um, uh, whites um, who uh, were threatened by the rise of the civil rights movement. Um, and so, uh, so I mean, I think that's the basis. And on both sides, the, the common resentment is, the feel, um, is based on this feeling of privilege and ownership. Like, this country belongs to us. And so, therefore, if other people are coming into the country or are rising in the country, are no longer just being our servants uh, but making political claims, uh, then something is being taken away from us. And that's a feeling, you know, that uh, unfortunately, you know, can combine with the country club and the sort of trailer park, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, you can find it, you know, like if you're white, um, whiteness uh, and the resentment of, you know, loss of whiteness, white privilege 
that can you you can be a Rockefeller and feel that, and you can you know uh, be uh, a working class white and feel that. That that kind of explains Donald Trump, doesn't it? He's he's a real fusion candidate. Then he's he is both yeah, uh, yeah. both elements in that SNS uh, uh, pairing that you you uh, described. Yeah, you know he, he's he's perfect. That's why you know like that's why they, they're gonna keep nominating him. He he is the Republican Party. He uh, he he, he combines uh, Mar-a-Lago with uh, you know uh, uh, crass vulgarity. Like, what more do you want? <laughs> Lord help us. Richard Hill, our co-host, has a, a question for you. Thanks, uh, thanks, Jeet, for that last answer. That was very uh, illuminating. Um, I wonder if we could take this down to the pure economic level, and I, I want because what your very interesting article uh, leads me to understand that many of the antecedents to what you refer to as the right-wing popular front. Uh, grew out of their antipathy for the New Deal, including perhaps the most prom- uh, most prominently FDR's uh, fight using very high tax rates and the promotion of labor unions to restrain and diminish corporate power. And it seems to me that that is a very powerful motivating force for, as you put it, the country club Republicans to make common cause with uh, the trailer park Republicans, if, we, if I might. Um, so I'm wondering to what extent um, is modern conservatism and its most grotesque subspecies that we are, have become aware of is actually just a rationalization for a desperate defense of wealth and privilege. Oh, yeah, no, no I think that's, that's absolutely true. And that's why I think that um, uh, the sort of uh, historians I'm talking about are doing us a real favor by returning us to the origins of conservatism in the 1930s, in the reaction to the New Deal. Uh, And that's when a lot of these political alliances um, and a lot of the rhetoric and and a lot of thinking was formed. Um, And it is exactly that, that, I mean, the sort of the sort of higher tax rate, uh, but even beyond the sort of tax rate, I mean, it's the sort of whole change of politics. Uh, I mean, part of what the New Deal involved was bringing in a lot of different people into Washington uh, that hadn't been there before, um, sort of like economic advisors, uh, uh, labor union leaders, uh, and giving them a seat at the table. And that was very different from the sort of, you know, America of the 1920s, where, you know, the seat at the table was, you know, John Paul Getty and, uh, you know, uh, uh, the Mellons and the Rockefellers calling the shots. And, and you know, like, you know, I, I mean, as many of your listeners will know, like, the the, the reaction of the ultra-wealthy to the um, uh, New Deal was, like, not just, like, opposition, but in some cases, like, you know, like uh, a rejection of democracy, right? Like, there, right. There, was, there was an actual coup attempt against FDR. Uh, you know, uh, led by uh, uh, the very wealthy people, um, and I, but I mean, so so the economics is, I think, the bedrock. Having said that, I mean, I do think that they were able to expand that coalition by bringing in stuff that is 
has an economic basis as well, but is not strictly economics. And, and I think that's like racism. And th- th- that's why you start to like, you know, bring in the uh, anti-Semites and the, the, the racists, that um, they can uh, provide this sort of cultural appeal and also bring in people who aren't worried about tax rates because they don't pay taxes necessarily, but, you know, like who, who do have a shared um, resentment that our kind of people are no longer in charge of uh, the world. Thank you for that, Jeet. We're speaking with Jeet here, National Affairs Correspondent for The Nation magazine, here on uh, Resistance Roundtable this morning. And uh, Jeet has written a recent article uh, titled The GOP Nazi Problem Has Deep Roots. Uh, And Jeet, I wanted to ask you about Ronald Reagan. Uh, Your article goes back to to the 30s. but the the modern kind of interpretation of what we're dealing with now, I think, goes back to Ronald Reagan. One of his first stops in his 1980 presidential campaign was uh, Philadelphia, Mississippi, the town where civil rights activists Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman were murdered by the KKK in 1964. Uh, there, Reagan delivered a speech on states' rights which is certainly a code word in defense mm-hmm. of Jim Crow era racist policies in the South. Reagan is revered by much of the country and Republicans today, and he's often held up as a kind of symbol of moderate conservatism to counter Trumpism. But it seems easy to trace the kinds of blatant racist rhetoric and policies we see today in the GOP to the subtext of Reagan's eight years in office, where he attacked so-called welfare queens, he denounced government as the enemy, pushed the idea of reverse racism, and attempted to weaken uh, or eliminate key civil rights legislation and court decisions, won during the civil rights era. What's your view of Ronald Reagan and the role he's played in the Republican Party today uh, that now worships Donald Trump and his racism, corruption, and criminality? Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, uh, uh, this is a really great point, and it's something um, uh, that I've tried to emphasize uh, in a lot of my writing, uh, which is that the people who see Trump as a kind of fundamental break in the alliance um, in conservatism are making a, a fundamental uh, mistake that uh, they, that he's in, in continuity uh, with these earlier figures uh, like Reagan. Um, the one exception or one difference I will make is that you know Reagan uh, really rose to prominence. Um, you know, starting in the '60s and, and later riding the wave of backlash, but also facing off against. Um, um, uh, civil rights movement that was on the ascendant and trying to um, adjust to that. And he adjusted to that by changing the rhetoric so much. I mean, he was the master of the dog whistle, as you say. And um, I think uh, that that is something that is distinctive of Reagan and of that era, you know, talking about welfare queens, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, talking about states' rights. Um, What uh, Trump represents is the fact that, you know, those dog whistles have exhausted themselves, that that people feel like they're um, uh, too coded or too weak, and they want to hear the real thing. So, you know, he launched his campaign with the infamous sort of Mexican rapist uh, comment. Uh, and so the, the the dog whistle has been replaced by uh, 
you know, the foghorn, right? And I, uh, uh, so I, if you want to say there's a distinction between Trump and Reagan, I, I think it's in the level of rhetoric that the sort of, you know, uh, warm, comforting, uh, melufilous, uh, 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 dog whistle racism uh, uh, is of the period of Reagan. And it is really no more. I don't think that has a place in, uh, in politics. People, people want to hear the, the, raw, uh, the real raw stuff. I think I think that's exactly right. Thank you, Cheat. Uh, Ruth Ann? Oh, I was just enjoying the conversation so much, <laughs> floating along with it. But but I think that's true too. It, it's it's uh, it's still hard for me because uh, I am I am of the generation of the bunch of white kids help, looking for the opportunity to join the civil rights movement and succeeding and in um, most of the cases of the people who wanted to. Uh, and, I, and I can't understand how it could be better in any way for the country to be divided, particularly by category, rather than by um, perhaps even ideology. Because I, it's hard to picture the ideology of the people who stormed the, the White House, uh, I mean the Capitol on the 6th of January, with the ideology of the old-fashioned Republicans, of which my parents were, too. Um, well, they were perfectly yeah, nice people. I'll, I'll mention, uh, you know, like this old-fashioned Republican. Like one of the um, people that was just sentenced, and I think he was sentenced yesterday, was L. Brent Bazell the uh, fifth. And um, the, the listeners uh, might know uh, the name L. Brent uh, Bazell is a, a storied one in American conservatism. Uh, L. Brent Bazell uh, Jr. Um, was the uh, brother-in-law of William F. Buckley. Uh, they were both uh, star debaters at Yale, uh, founders of National Review, um, defenders in the 1950s of Joseph McCarthy. Uh, they co-wrote a book together on McCarthy. And Bozell, you know, then became a big figure on the right, uh, apart from his brother-in-law, as a sort of leading sort of Catholic intellectual in, a, in something called Triumph Magazine. So so this, uh, L. Brent Bozell, um the uh, the fifth, you know, he he comes from two very storied uh, uh, elite conservative families, the Buckleys and the Bozells. Uh, but he was there on January sixth, and he was like, you know, like mixing it up like uh, all the rest of them. And now he's facing like a very long jail sentence, uh, as all the others are. So um, I, I think that really argues for the sort of continuity uh, of all this. Thank you, Richard. Did you have a question? Uh, yeah, I just wanted to get a little deep, more deeply into uh, w- William F. Buckley, who, who I used to watch on, I think it was, I forget, it was, was his show called Fire, Firing Line? Firing Line, yeah. Firing Line, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, yeah, as you say, he was, you know, uh, considered, uh, the, uh, and you, you put it very uh, eloquently, the avatar of a more cerebral and genteel conservatism. C- can you explore a little more deeply his... Uh, sort of facade, I think I would call it, because, I mean, he was such an affected character, um, and he, he just was steeped in that sort of, uh, you know, aristocracy, Republican aristocracy, conservative aristocracy. But what, at, at the core, was the connection between his, uh, I, I think, sort of constructed, you know, performative ideology and the extreme right that we've been talking about. 
Well, I, I mean, the, the core was like uh, really um, sort of uh, biographical, like uh, even biological. Like his father was very much allied with the sort of, you know, uh, rich far right figures of the 1930s that we were talking about, uh, you know, who were like, you know, um, uh, you know, hated FDR, uh, you know, openly admired Franco Spain as a, you know, fascist Spain as a model for what society should be, uh, and where, you know, didn't want the United States to be involved in the European war to defeat Nazism. Um, Buckley's first boat was um, uh, in the 1930s when he was a young uh, uh, teenager. He had a uh, sailing boat called Sweet Isolation, uh, <laughs> you know, to celebrate isolationism. Uh, and so, so you know, coming from, and, and on his mother's side, I mean, you know, the, uh, you know, like old Southern aristocrats. So the, the Buckley's um, has a, had an estate in South Carolina that was one, once one of the biggest slave plantations in America. So, 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 I mean, if that's the sort of uh, biographical roots of the sort of, you know, plutocrats, uh, with the old Southern um, aristocrats. Uh, and then, you know, in the 1950s, like when he came into prominence, uh, his whole argument was that liberalism and communism are the same, right? That's what right. sort of God and man at Yale is about. You can't t- teach Keynesian economics. You shouldn't teach Keynesian economics uh, uh, in at Yale because that will lead to communism. And he was like very much allied with, as I mentioned before, Joseph McCarthy. Uh, and so that that is the bedrock, and that explains why in the 50s she was very much allied with people like uh, the John Birch Society, uh, Ravello Oliver, um, uh, George Lincoln Rockwell, who was the founder of the American Nazi Party, first started being involved with politics uh, at National Review, selling like uh, National Review sus- subscriptions on campuses. Uh, but having said that, like in the 60s, like Reagan. Um, uh, who he's very close with, Buckley realized that you have to moderate or you have to modulate and you have to like use more refined language. And he distanced himself to some degree from these figures. He denounced the John Birch Society. He uh, cut his sides with Ravello Oliver. But, you know, like if you look under, I would argue, as with Reagan, like, you know, that was a sort of opportunistic um, uh, move uh, just as we're seeing now with Ron DeSantis firing various Nazis. Like, it, it's something you do when these people become embarrassing to you. Mm-hmm. But uh, actually, the, uh, the um, uh, you know, your original alliance speaks to, you know, what your actual politics are. And I, I think, uh, you know, just as Reagan presented a very genial, television-friendly face, mm-hmm. um, Buckley presented a sort of, you know, uh, erudite uh, intellectual face uh, 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 to what is actually a, a very right-wing program, and and a, and a program more moreover um, for this discussion that is willing to ally itself with uh, open fascist when necessary. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. Thank you. We're speaking uh, this morning on Resistance Roundtable with Jeet here, National Affairs Correspondent for the Nation magazine. We're talking about his article, uh, "The GOP's Nazi Problem Has Deep Roots." Cheat, uh, you end your article uh, that we've been talking about this morning by, by calling on liberals and leftists to organize a popular front to counter the right-wing popular front that we see today in the extremist GOP and, and their allied groups. What would this popular front on the left look like, in your view? And are any existing coalitions fighting the right on social justice, women's rights, civil liberties issues. Are they rebuilding today any essential 
and effective popular front uh, to challenge the threat of American fascism? Well, I mean, I think that what I'm calling for is sort of happening on a de facto level, but I think it's good to kind of uh, articulate it as a popular front so that people like understand what the strategy is, uh, which is, I mean, I mean, like, you know, like one sees it in the fact that, uh, you know, the Democratic coalition is now very broad. It's much broader than the Republican coalition. And, you know, it runs from people like Bernie Sanders and AOC on one side to um uh, even people uh, like um, uh, Liz Cheney, uh, you know, the, the few, the very few Republicans who have rejected Trumpism, uh, but also includes a lot of like, you know, more moderate um, uh, Bill Clinton style uh, Democrats. Uh, and so, so you are kind of seeing um, a de facto uh, alliance uh, being formed. Uh, but what I, I would sort of, um, um, uh, I'm most heartened by uh, is the, the sort of organizing that we saw in the early days of the Trump uh, presidency, the sort of women's march, and later, and also a lot of the um, uh, uh, BLM marches. And I think that those were drawing in um, a more sort of popular uh, a base of actual activism, uh, and then do kind of provide. Um, uh, you know, sort of a basis, and and to some degree as well. You know, when a Democrat's in power, that stuff goes into abeyance. But um, what, what I would encourage is people to realize that actually it has to be going on all the time. Um, I, you know, like I, I think that a lot of the activism that happens whenever you know one sees um, um, neo-Nazi marches with sort of the big counter-protest. Like I think that what people need to understand is. Um, you know, like voting is important, necessary, essential, but it's also just not enough that like, you know, like um, if you have people trying to like, you know, actively reintroduce fascism into American street life, uh, then, you know, like you actually have an obligation to to join the protest and to uh, and that includes joining protests with people, you know, who might not necessarily share your politics, uh, but who are also anti-fascist. So I, I think that's the key, like, like, um uh, uh, just um, uh, the uh, the Demo- the electoral popular front that the Democrats have created has to be joined by you know like continued street activism uh, uh, because I think that's where a lot of the battles are. Uh, well said, certainly. Yeah, <laughs> the situation we're facing today is not just some academic exercise. There's so much at stake, and uh, yeah, we can't uh, be just commentators. Have to be activists as well. Chi, thank you so much for spending time with us uh, this morning. Really appreciate it and, and all your work at The Nation. Oh, it was great to be here. Yeah, I know. I really, it was a very thoughtful uh, discussion. Uh, I got a lot out of it. We did too, and our <laughs> listeners, I'm sure, as well. Chi, is there a, a website uh, beyond The Nation magazine itself that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Oh, uh, well, no, I mean, I think almost all my stuff is found at The Nation. If you want to follow me on social media, I am uh, on both uh, Blue Sky and uh, Twitter, uh, or X, as they call it now, mm. <laughs> which uh, you can, but I, and you can find that easy enough just by Googling my name, uh, and I'll pop up. All right. Gee, thank you again. We'll, we'll hopefully stay in touch. Take care. Okay, great. Yeah, thank you. Bye-bye. So that's Jeet uh, here of The Nation magazine. I'm going to get our next guest on the phone. You wanna, guys want to talk amongst yourselves while I use the phone here? We'll, we'll try to keep the uh, ball in the air. Ruthann, did you, did you ever uh, watch William F. Buckley's firing line? Did, would you follow that at all? My, my father used to watch it, but 
even though my father was a Republican, he didn't necessarily always like firing line, but he did enjoy imitating William F. Buckley. And, uh, well, like and he liked the controversy because my father was an engineer and he liked the, you know, this on the on one hand and on the other hand yeah. this. So, uh, yeah, we watched it in our house, but not with total respect. Yeah, I, I was fascinated by him. He was such a, you know, just grotesque, <laughs> somehow like a... a manifestation of, you know, like I guess you could call it the conservative aristocracy and um, that underbelly of really hardcore right-wing, um, fa- almost fascist ideology. And uh, I, 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 there was this one debate where he actually, he debated Noam Chomsky. I don't know if, were you aware of that? Yeah. Yeah, that that was incredible, and uh, I think uh, he met his match with Noam Chomsky. I mean, he met his match with many of his guests, but Noam Chomsky just was, you know, in his prime and just pull, pummeled him into a, a, a uh, I don't know, I, I won't even characterize the... The, what Buckley looked like and sounded like by the time <laughs> Noam Chomsky had finished with him. But that you can you can find that debate online. So uh, right now we're, we're joined by Morris Rippy Patton, uh, former vice president of the Bristol chapter of the NAACP, the NAACP, and uh, current candidate uh, for Bristol uh, City Council. On August nineteenth, a dozen masked people with torches were seen in a social media post standing under a Keep Connecticut White Banner on Route 72 in Bristol. Bristol police said they are working with federal, state, and other local law enforcement to investigate this incident. Lieutenant Governor Susan Beisowitz said the incident is part of an increase in hate incidents in North Haven, Hamden, New Haven, and Rocky Hill, Connecticut. She said there have been more than 207 incidents involving white supremacists in Connecticut since 2022. Uh, Morris, thank you so much for joining us uh, this morning. We appreciate it. I know you had to switch your schedule around, so thank you. My pleasure, and thank you so much for having me. So just to open this conversation up, I wonder if you'd tell us more about this incident, uh, your response, and the community and statewide response to a growing number of racist rallies and the distribution of white supremacists and anti-Semitic flyers. And from some of the news coverage, I know there was uh, great concern that the mayor of Bristol, Jeffrey Cagliano, uh, uh, he resisted initially calls to condemn the racist rally. And, and there's also a lot of concern about racist sentiment in your town of Bristol. That, that is definitely uh, the truth. Um, you know, unfortunately, you know, Bristol is just one of many towns that have seen that increase that you just referenced. Um, and this was far from the first time that we've had, um, you know, white supremacist type demonstrations in the city of Bristol. Uh, we've had several instances where, uh, pro-white supremacy literature has either just been dropped in the town or has been posted to telephone poles, dropped in neighborhood in attempts to recruit, um, you know, obviously, uh, white people to join these white supremacist groups and take up arms against African Americans and other bra- black and brown people um, 
in the city of Bristol and, you know, and it, which obviously extends to other cities and towns in the state of Connecticut. But uh, in Bristol specific, I, I wasn't terribly surprised that they had come back. In fact, I was actually at the ESPN company picnic um, when I saw the first picture of the white supremacists who apparently were on Todd Street, which coincidentally is about two streets from where I grew up. Um, I didn't actually see them personally, but I've been able to look at quite a few pictures um, that kind of validated, for me, at least the fact that they were there and had been there. Um, we did call for a strong response from our mayor, Jeff Caggiano, who you referenced a bit earlier. Um, and it's not the first time that he's been asked to take a strong stance against racism. And he has denied that opportunity at every opportunity. Um, in fact, there's actually a group of young activists, uh, people from Bristol, and they put a lot of pressure on him last year to say and that was after one of those white supremacist literature drops in the city. And they had called on him to disavow racism on behalf of the city in Bristol, of city of Bristol, and to say that these white supremacists were no longer welcome in our city. And again, he has refused to do so, continues to do so. And, you know, you kind of, you start, you start to question, you know, the, you try not to, no a man's intent, just his actions. And at this point, we've we've kind of said, "Hey, what's what's your reasons for refusing to disavow racism? We need an answer." And that's something that we're desperately trying to get from our mayor, because as you know, if you don't speak against something, then you're offering a passive resistance to it, and that that's just not acceptable, either in our town or any other town. To be honest with you. Yeah, no, that's that's in some ways more disturbing than the actual incident itself. Um, Agreed. <laughs> Ruthie, I'm Baumgartner. Our co-host uh, has a comment or question for you. Well, it's uh, I'm I'm not a native to Connecticut. I moved here in 1971, which I would think makes me practically a native, but I don't think <laughs> <Yeah>. it does. <laughs> um, I would agree. <laughs> and always. Uh, I moved to Bridgeport, and um, we heard about the valley towns. And, and I was always surprised that the mill towns would vote so consistently Republican because uh, most of the people there, if they had descended from people who originally lived there, were descended from workers, and certainly mills were never famous for their uh, benevolent working conditions. So it's a, it seems to me uh, that... Uh, we still have that quality or that that uh, perspective in the valley, and uh, and it, it seems to be very responsive to the Republican message because the Republican message seems a whole lot like that old attitude. And I think the the undercurrent of potential for violence is part of its appeal. Do you think that's true? I was reading the comment of um, that was so controversial that it led to the resignation of. Uh, a Rotary Club member, uh, Jim Albert, who had made the comment, the more blacks hate everything everything and everyone, including themselves, the farther behind they will get. Um, this attitude is, I don't know where it comes from in the human psyche, but I am afraid that I do feel as if it sort of comes from from uh, the, the Valley when, when we're looking at the history of politics in Connecticut. Is that true? Uh, if you grew up there, do you think that's accurate? I, I do. I, I actually do. Um, you know, I'll, I'll tell you an interesting story. I, so high level, I think really what it comes down to is 
economics, right? <laughs> money, money controls everything. And interestingly enough, you know, my grandfather moved to Connecticut from Mississippi, you know, in the late forties, Bristol, um, was a booming, uh, manufacturing town, whether mm-hmm. it be, you know, there was just so many different factories to work at that for African-American South, they migrated North for work and not for nothing. You know, you're talking the forties, fifties, sixties, and seventies with all these factories, Bristol was a very you know, low middle-class hard-working, blue-collar town. Mm-hmm. Then when the early 80s, and all those factories started to shut down, that's when you saw, you know, when my grandfather worked here, everyone made the same amount of money, right? <laughs> everyone was on a level plane. So whether you were black, white, Puerto Rican, Asian, it didn't matter because we were all in the same kind of soup bowl is what I call it. Mm-hmm. But then when those factories started to close and new businesses came, well, now you're talking the difference between, you know, management-level jobs and the lower-level blue-collar jobs. You could either be laid off or you could go into management. So that's when you started to see the class divide in towns like Bristol. And I think, in large part, that's where the minority community in Bristol got left behind. Because in the early 80s, you know, it, it wasn't the African-Americans. It wasn't the Latinos getting promoted to those management jobs at other companies. They were largely white. <laughs> so mm-hmm. they were able to move out of the neighborhoods where... You know, at one time they lived next door to African-American people. Well, now they're buying the big house on the hill. So I think that class divide is really what led to a lot of what we're seeing right now in terms of the separatism. Um, So someone like a Jim Albert, who I believe grew up in Bristol, and don't hold me to that, but someone like him who has the huge house on the lake and and another house out out down south. And he doesn't really relate to the people that he would have related to in Bristol 30 years ago. Because now he's kind of at the top of the economic food chain in our town and very much detached from what we used to be, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. You, you give me the, the historical key that actually clicks, uh, clicks the lock for me. Thank you very much. Yes, certainly. Thanks, Morris. Uh, Richard Hill, our, our other co-host, uh, has a question as well. Uh, Morris, thank you very much uh, for your analysis of this uh, pretty scary situation that's happening in Connecticut. I, I think we have to recognize that Connecticut has a, a Nazi problem. I mean, and, uh, you know, I, I remember back in the 80s when we knew, uh, I was living in New Haven, and we knew that there was a, a clan, um, I don't know what you call it. Um, coven? Coven. Coven, coven maybe is a good word. <laughs> Uh, in um, I think Middlefield, right up the road, you know, uh, just just near Durham, Connecticut, between Durham and Middletown, and um, you know, it, it was just kind of mind-boggling to to imagine that even in the '80s, which was a pretty dark era for for progressives and and you know people trying to form coalitions across racial and economic lines to, you know, to push back against the, the, the Reagan era. But that, that was, that was shocking to us at, at that time. But now that now it's, it's perhaps even worse, the, the notion that this is still going on. What is the, the sentiment in, in I may, or maybe I should ask, what tell us more about the demographics of Bristol and the and the nearby towns, like you've, I, your anal, your analysis of, of of the change that happened, you know, in the I guess the seventies and eighties when the when the factories started to go 
the industry started to move away. But tell us a little bit more about the demographics of that of the community and how is there a real racial divide in terms like this kind of this guy Jim Albert um, is does he represent a a large uh, swath of the white community in Bristol? I'll tell you, it's interesting enough. I mean, Jim Albert, his reputation in the city of Bristol has been almost impeccable. In fact, that when when I, when I started my volunteerism in the community about nine years ago, you know, he was one of the people that everyone would refer me to. Hey, if you if you want to be successful in this arena, especially the political arena in Bristol, you know, as you guys had previously mentioned, I'm currently a candidate for city council. I had run again, or I had run previously in 2015. And he's the person that everyone would say, well, if you want to be successful, Jim Albert's the guy that you should talk to. You know, he was the former president of our Chamber of Commerce. So everyone steered me in his direction and, you know, being an African-American man, my, my radar is up often, maybe more than it needs to be sometimes, but I also feel like I have to protect myself at all times. Mm. So I could tell um, from that first conversation that he wasn't, I think the, the word I'm looking for is uh, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't an ally and he wasn't very open having that discussion with me because at the time people were kind of trying to uplift me in the community, I guess you can say. And he seemed to, to kind of resist that conversation with me. So I could tell, and you know, not for nothing, the Jim Alberts of the world, it's, it's a shame. And, it, and it's sad that they're able to get to where they are because he receives every benefit of the doubt. You know, I remember, I mean, we're going back years and I would tell people, you know, in town, yeah, I don't really think this guy's too friendly <laughs> to African-Americans. And they would say, no, you know, give him some grace and mercy. He's a good guy. And then they would say, well, he's just stuck in his ways. No, he wasn't just stuck in his ways. He's, he's a racist. And he was allowed to be comfortable in his racism and prejudice for so long that he just got overly comfortable with it, comfortable enough to read some of the hateful posts that you guys may or may not have read uh, online. I don't think that he speaks for a large part of our demographic. Bristol has changed um, in leaps and bounds. You know, when I was in school, and we're going back to you know, the 80s and 90s in Bristol, our school system was probably 90% white, 10% other. And right now, our school systems are at a straight 50-50 split. 50% of the children in Bristol schools are non-white. Um, very, very large Latino population. Our African-American population is growing. You know, Bristol is a very affordable town if anything's affordable these days but uh so we've seen a, a lot of people migrate to bristol so to see something like this happen isn't terribly surprising i think the important part is the community reaction to it um i think that this jim albert situation has awoken a lot of people and a, a lot of white people to be honest with you um the rest of us have all known that this has kind of been the underbelly of our town for a long time if you guys had seen the uh press conference that we had uh, put on last Monday, one of the, the best moments for me personally, um, if you can find some good out of a bad situation, you, which you always have to do, is uh, I was leaving and walking away with a friend of mine who is a Puerto Rican woman, a little bit older than myself, She's, and she had said, you know, Rippy, can you believe that we just had a discussion on television about racism in Bristol? Because the non-white population in Bristol, we talk about it all the time, but we do it in a silo. Mm -hmm. And to actually make that the topic of conversation, um, the front page topic of conversation in our town is long overdue. Um, and, and I'm proud that we've done it. And I'm really proud of the community's response to it. 
Thank you for that, uh, uh, Morris. We're speaking this morning on Resistance Roundtable with Morris Rippy Patton. He's former vice president of the Bristol chapter of the NAACP and a current candidate for Bristol City Council, as he said a moment ago. Um, Morris, what action should local communities, and not just Bristol, uh, as well as the state, what action should be taken to ensure that there are expressions of that these expressions of racial hatred are met with an organized effort to educate the public on the danger of bigotry and white supremacy uh, and, and that danger that they pose to democracy and civil society. What, what are some of the specific steps local city officials, uh, Governor Lamont, and our Connecticut state legislature should take using this unfortunate opportunity to, to drive the promoters of racial hatred back under their rocks. Amen. And I'll tell you, first and foremost, no more passive acceptance of racism. A passive acceptance of racism is an acceptance of racism, period. Um, the, the more that we empower these people and give them excuses like, well, you know, they're from the old school and they're just stuck in an old set of ways, that's not going to move us forward. And any acceptance of that should no longer be tolerated as far as I'm concerned. Um, from the legislative standpoint, you know, I'm, I'm all about the, the reinforcement of hate crime laws, but not for nothing. I think that we also need to hold people accountable. And Bristol, I believe, is the shining example of that. You know, as you mentioned earlier, we have a mayor who's the de facto leader of 61,000 people who has refused at every level to address racism. He won't even say the word. And his excuse is, I don't want to shine light on this issue. I don't want to give white supremacists more press than they should get. Well, you know, that's, guess what? You know, the KKK wore hoods because they didn't want to be called out. So if you're not willing to call that out, then you're willing to support the hood wearing of the current racists. Let's pull those hoods off of them by acknowledging them publicly and let the communities decide. Let the communities decide what they want to do with racists in their community. You know, that's that's how I look at Jim Albert. Um, and and I'm, I don't want to overstate how important I think it is that we have examples like that of people who have gotten so comfortable in their racism and then were shamed once we found out who they really were. Um, so that, that would be my recommendation to anyone listening to this is that you don't have to accept racism. You, it, it's no longer the norm. It's no longer the societal norm. Be willing to call it out. And when you continue to do that, eventually these people will go back under the rocks that they came from. You know, you, you're talking about this guy, Albert, we've been talking uh, about this morning. And it's interesting to note that the Rotary Club, where he was an activist, uh, they didn't terminate him. He was allowed to resign. And I wonder if you would, well, briefly just to mention something about that, if you would. Certainly. So I, I would say this. Um, being pretty well connected to the community, I want to first say that you know the Rotary Club in Bristol is an, an incredible group. The work that they do in our community, we probably couldn't survive without what they do. Um, the way I understand it, and I want to make clear, I was not at this meeting, um, but obviously coming out of that meeting, the the... <laughs> The, the wheels were turning and everyone was talking about it. From what I understand is that Mr. Albert um, tried to give a an excuse and minimize the damage of what he, you know, minimize the damage he caused and minimize his remarks and apologized for making a statement that 
could be seen as racist. From what I understand, he was then called out at that meeting by other members who went deeper into his post and said, no, 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 no. We're not letting you get away with that. We've seen the whole history at this point. So don't whitewash what you're doing. And no pun intended there. But uh, we're not going to allow you to get away with that. We've seen everything that you have done. And while I don't believe they had called for his resignation, what they were going to do is elevate it to the national rotary level and ask for guidance in where they should move from there. Right? Because not for nothing. The Rotary Club is like so many other volunteer organizations, they're volunteers, and they adhere to national standards. So my understanding is that they were prepared to bump this up to the next level and get the National Rotary involved, and rather than do that, rather than have them go through that exercise, uh, Mr. Albert decided to resign on his own. Um, so I, I, if it's coming across as though Rotary wasn't ready to terminate him, my understanding is that if they could have, they would have on site, but they were going to ask for help from the, na- or guidance is a better word. They were going to ask for guidance from the National Rotary Chapter, and rather than having them go through that exercise, I believe Mr. Albert resigned. Oh, that's good to hear. Ruthann, uh, you have our last question, and we're almost out of time, unfortunately. Well, this is, a, this is actually more of a story from me, but it's short, and I think that, uh, I think that, you'll, like, that you'll like the point. Um, in the 70s, I was teaching at the University of Bridgeport, and in my, one of my literature classes, I uh, taught a short story by Nadine Gordimer, the great uh, South African writer, and the story was called City Lovers. Uh, I had to sketch in a little background about what apartheid meant and how it worked in South Africa, because that was central to the story. And when I finished my background, this student looked up from the back row, stunned, and he, he called out, like almost like, oh, my God, it was in that kind of tone. And he said, who knows about this? <laughs> and I think that's the whole point, you know. Uh, <laughs> we, have to, we have to make sure that people know about this and, and can understand what's going on and what the, what the forces are that are moving. Uh, unfortunately, with, with, newsla- with newspapers, we work with mostly headlines. And with uh, the Internet, we also seem to work mostly with headlines. But, but it's an understanding of the situation that enables people to actually respond to it in appropriate ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You made me think of that anyway. <laughs> sure. a- any closing comments, uh, Morris? We, we've just got a minute or so left. Actually, yeah, I, I was just—I you know, I would like to just say thank you um, yeah. for, for this forum. You know, one of the things when you know, I, I love the name of your show and the the word resistance is a very important word right now, and clearly you guys are a part of that. Um, being in this fight so deeply, it can it could feel very lonely sometimes, and you wonder if anyone notices or if anyone really cares. So uh, to have a forum where you know you can just speak about things is very 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 therapeutic so the work that you guys do there is super important and i just can't thank you enough for giving me the opportunity to kind of get some of these things off my chest and and share it with some allies thank you thank you so much morris appreciate it we've been speaking with morris rippy Patton, former vice president of the bristol chapter of the naacp and current candidate for bristol city council this has been resistance roundtable And uh, you can tune in second Saturday each month. We'll be back uh, next month on October 14th. Please do stay tuned for lots more coming up here on listener-sponsored WPKN in Bridgeport.
Support for WPKN comes from Baker Concerts, presenting the Buena Vista Social Club celebration as part of their 2023 U.S. tour. The 12-piece band will be celebrating the music of Buena Vista Social Club and other Cuban songs as well. They play the Klein Auditorium on Friday, October 27th. More info and tickets at thekline.org. The Bridgeport Film Festival is back for its third year this September the 8th through the 10th at the Klein Memorial Auditorium. The festival includes 90 short films, panel discussions, virtual reality experiences, networking events, live art installations, food trucks, red carpets, and other forms of artistic expression curated by the film festival team. There's also a stand-up comedy workshop led by comedian Lisa Lampanelli. In-person and virtual tickets are available. For more info and tickets, bridgeportfilmfest.org. WPKN is a media partner of the Bridgeport Film Fest. Hi, I'm Lauren Coakley-Vincent chair of the Bridgeport Farmers Market Collaborative and market manager for the Downtown Farmers Market, letting you know that all nine farmers markets in Bridgeport are now open. We have farmers markets in the East End and East Side, Brooklawn, Blackrock, at St. Vincent's and Bridgeport Hospitals, on Park Avenue, in the Reservoir neighborhood, and of course, come see me downtown. At every farmers market, we match your SNAP, WIC, and Farmers Market Nutrition Program dollars more information, including the complete schedule of Farmer's Market's locations, dates, and times, can be found at our website, bridgeportfarmersmarkets.org. That's bridgeportfarmersmarkets.org. What's Parking Day? It's a global event in cities to activate urban public places. This year, downtown Bridgeport participates on Friday, September 15th from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m., Colorful Bridgeport and nonprofit partners like WPKN, the Barnum Museum, Mosaic Coalition, and the Library have paired up with restaurants to transform metered parking spaces into parklets. Enjoy happy hour with select music, poetry, comedy, games, and body painting, as well as special food and drink options. Here's a few Bridgeport Parking Day restaurants Trattoria Alvucello, 29 Markle, El Poblito, Bank Street Bar, Pose Kitchen, and Gather Tap and Tavern. More info and updates at Colorful Bridgeport on Instagram and Facebook. On the next Alternative Radio, hear Nader Hashmi, Iran, the struggle for democracy. That's Alternative Radio, Monday mornings at 6 on WPKN, 89.5 FM, Independent Community Radio. All the news that's fit to print and democracy dies in darkness. Two taglines of two major American news organizations, the New York Times and the Washington Post. WPKN is proud to offer digital subscriptions to both publications. Become a monthly sustaining supporter at $15 per month and you can have your pick of either paper for a one-year subscription. So if you already have the New York Times at home, consider adding the Washington Post. In the process, you're helping support WPKN, nonprofit community radio. Make your sustaining donation to WPKN today, online at WPKN.org. It will be a decision you will enjoy every single day of the year.
Isn't it really annoying when you couldn't catch something they mentioned on the radio? Yes, it's really annoying, but don't despair. On WPKN, you can catch it back again on our archives because for two weeks, it'll still be there and you can hear it again. Just go to WPKN.org, select Program Archives, find the date and name of the program you've been listening to, and then move the bar to the approximate time you first heard the part you missed. Get into the archives habit for anything you didn't catch the first time on WPKN. Hello, I'm Ed Hamill, a.k.a. Hamill on Trial, and this is WPKN Bridgeport at 89.5 FN and online at WPKN.org.